the resurrection of Jesus, it, it really, really matters. I, and I mean it really matters. There, there are some things that Christians disagree about. And, and if you were to strip those away, they're, they're not big deals, really. There are some minor things that, that you may have differences of opinion on from other people from other denominations, and it doesn't really take anything away from Christianity. But if Christianity was a house of cards, if you were to take away the reality of Jesus' resurrection, the whole thing collapses. The resurrection of Jesus is essential for Christianity to hold together. Why does the resurrection matter so much? In a nutshell, if the resurrection didn't happen, if Jesus did not really rise from the dead, if this is a myth, if this is not true, then you and I are completely wasting our lives being Christians. We're wasting our lives trusting Jesus. If it didn't happen, we're all here tonight fools. And Paul says this in a number of ways in 1 Corinthians 15. Have a look at verse 14 there. He says, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. What he's saying there, he says, This message I'm preaching to you, that there's someone who can save you, that there's someone who can forgive your sins, this message that me and Timothy and the other apostles, this message we're preaching, you see if Jesus hasn't really risen from the dead, my message is useless to you. My message cannot save you. You might as well take my message and throw it in the bin. If Jesus hasn't been raised, my message is useless. And so is your faith. So is your trust in Jesus, Paul says. If you are trusting Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins, but he's not actually risen from the dead, your faith is useless. There's no point in trusting him for your salvation. Then he goes on a bit more in verse 15. More than that, then we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. So again, he looks back to his preaching and he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then what I'm telling you about God, it's lies. It's false. It's wrong. Because what I've been telling you is that God raised Christ from the dead. And, and if he didn't, then I'm a false witness about God. I'm telling you something about God that isn't true. And then if you have a look again in verse 17, he kind of repeats some of this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That means it's pointless. You're still in your sins. You're not forgiven. Jesus is no substitute for you. If the resurrection didn't happen, you're still in your sins. And then look at this in verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. He says to the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your brothers and sisters in Christ who've died, your friends and family members who were Christians and died, well, they're lost. They're lost. And then in verse 19, he puts it very, very bluntly. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we as Christians should be pitied because we're wasting our lives 
were following a fairy tale. At the time Paul was writing this, the Christians were being persecuted, were being persecuted for nothing, were to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus really, really, really matters. Because if he wasn't physically raised from the dead, if this didn't actually happen, then we're all wasting our time. And I've highlighted three things. Why is trusting Jesus pointless if the resurrection didn't happen? Well, first of all, if there was no resurrection, we have actually no good reason to trust Jesus. You see, Jesus made lots of claims, and we heard about those this morning, didn't we? He claimed to be able to give eternal life. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. He claimed to be able to do all of these things. That verse we, we talked about when praying for the Sri Lankans, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, though he dies, he shall live. What a brilliant promise. He made all of these brilliant claims, all of these things that, that would be lovely to trust. But he also said, I'm going to rise from the dead. He also said, they're going to kill me, and three days later, I will rise from the dead. And so what that means is that if Jesus did not raise from the dead, if he was not resurrected, then he didn't keep his word on that. His promise was an empty promise. It didn't happen. And we've no reason to believe that any of his other promises are going to happen either. No resurrection. We've no reason at all to trust Jesus' other promises. No resurrection as well means we've no reason to believe that we'll be raised. As Christians, we have brilliant hope, don't we? We have hope that even though we die, even though our bodies are going to stop working and we're going to be put into a grave, we have hope of resurrected new bodies. We have hope that one day we're going to receive these glorious new bodies that will live forever, that we will be raised physically. But if Jesus wasn't, then what hope have we got? If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, and that's Paul's argument, why on earth would you expect that you're going to be? No resurrection, no reason to believe that we're going to be raised. And the last one's also important. No resurrection, no reason to believe that God accepted Jesus as our substitute. You see, we all know what happened on Good Friday. Jesus died on the cross. And what we believe as Christians is that he died for our sins and the sins of everyone who trusted in him. That's what we believe. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, how do you know that's true? Maybe he was just a man who died. Maybe even he was perfect and died for his own sins. But, but how do you know that God, he was the substitute? How do you know that God punished him instead of us? Without the resurrection, you don't really know. Think of it this way. You're part of a family of five. You're, uh, you're 10 years old, roughly. I know there's five of you, so you're, what, eight to 11. I don't know, whatever you are. Imagine you're young boys and girls. Uh, and, and what you do is you're out one day and, and you do something wrong. You do something so wrong that your mom and dad get a phone call about it. And as soon as you get in, they are furious with you and they're going to punish you. They're going to ground you for a week. 
But what happens is that your big brother comes down the stairs and he says to them, I'll be punished instead of them. Your big brother comes down the stairs and he says, listen, I'll be grounded instead of them. And so he goes into his room and you're out. And the whole time he's in the room, you're thinking to yourself, I wonder are they still actually going to punish us? I wonder are we going to get grounded? I wonder, I wonder, is, I just don't know if that's going to be enough. But a week later, he comes out. A week later, he comes out from the punishment. And you know he's taken it. And you know that you're not going to face it. And this is why the resurrection is essential. We, we need Jesus to have physically come back to life and risen from the dead so that we can be assured that he took our punishment, that God accepted it, and that we won't face it. It's important. You see that. It's important. And then we come to this big question. We see it's important. We see Paul lays out how important it is. And the question is, did it really happen? Did it really happen? Tonight there are many of us here and we believe what the Bible says. We believe that what the Bible says is true and we believe it's true not just because it's in the Bible, we believe it's in the Bible because it's true. So we're here tonight and, and many of us here, we believe the resurrection because the Bible tells us it happened and we believe it. But out there, our friends, our family and maybe some of us in here there's doubt. There's questions. You're believing, but there's unbelief. You're believing, but there's doubt. And what you would really like is just to have a little bit more assurance that the resurrection really happened. What you would like is to know some answers that you can maybe tell your friends and family why you believe the resurrection really took place. And tonight, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at, at some of the evidence that the resurrection really happened. And whenever it comes to investigating any historical event, none of us were there. So if you want to investigate the Battle of Hastings in 1066, none of us were there. And so what do we do to try to understand history? We, we do two things. The first thing we do is we look at the facts. What happened? So we look at the things that we know definitely happened. And then what we do is we try to work out what best explains what happened. So whenever it comes to the resurrection, we're going to look at three things that happened, and we know are facts, and then we're going to think through what is the best thing to explain them. And uh, I'll give you a heads up. The answer is the resurrection is the best thing to explain them, but you're probably expecting that as I'm a minister. So let's take the first fact. The, the first fact is that on the first Easter Sunday, there was an empty tomb. Okay, that is the first fact. There was a tomb, and that tomb was empty. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why was the tomb empty? Why was this tomb that we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from, why was it empty? Uh, and there, there are two main theories for it, uh, and then there's a third theory, which is our theory. So the first theory is this, that, that, that they got the wrong tomb, okay? It doesn't really hold up anymore, but that is what some people say, they got the wrong tomb, Marty. The women went and they went there and the stone was rolled away and they went inside and there was nobody there because they got the wrong tomb. 
And then they went back and told the disciples, and the disciples got very excited, and they went into Jerusalem telling everybody that Jesus had risen from the dead. But actually, the reason that they said that was because they got the wrong tomb. Jesus' body was, was in another tomb. So that's one argument. Here is the problem with this argument. The problem is that the tomb belonged to a man called Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent man in Jerusalem. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He'd become a disciple of Christ. He was a rich man, and he had his own plot that he gave for Jesus to be buried in. And so if the disciples went out and said, Jesus is risen from the dead, the tomb is empty, then those who hated Jesus and those who did not want this message to go out would have simply gone to the right tomb, opened it up, and said, no, guys, there's the wrong tomb. There he is. This argument today, it doesn't really hold up in any circle, but you will have friends who may want to bring that one up, and it's nonsense. If you have a loved one, and we all have them, who's buried somewhere, it doesn't matter how big the cemetery is. You go up to Roselawn, if you have someone buried there, it doesn't matter how sprawling that site is, you know where they are. You know where their burial plot is. And to suggest that these women who'd followed Jesus and loved Jesus and were there when he was buried didn't know where he was buried, it just doesn't add up. So the tomb, the wrong tomb theory, it, it really doesn't hold up and any serious academics or scholars will laugh at it, so you can laugh at it too. Okay, the next one is a very popular one. And uh, the, the next theory then is that the body was stolen. So just think about this. Before we get into who might have stolen the body, we have to think about this because this would be a big challenge to steal the body of Jesus. For a start, the, the, it's put in a huge tomb and this huge stone's rolled away. And, and in the passage we read this morning, we heard that Joseph of Arimathea put the stone in front of it. But what that was saying was that he had his men put it in. It's like he ordered it to happen to, to move these huge stones was a very difficult task. You, you needed a big crowd of people to do it because the whole point of a stone was to stop people going in and stealing bodies or stealing rings off people or stealing the treasure that might be in the tomb. So to get into a tomb, a grave robber would have to move this huge stone. That's problem number one. The second problem is, as we found out this morning, that Pilate had ordered guards to guard the tomb. So they're going to have to manage to get past the guards who are guarding the tomb. Then they're going to have to be able to move the tomb. And then we were told that the tomb was sealed. So they're going to have to be able to break the seal without being noticed. And then they're going to have to get the body out without anyone noticing and close up the tomb again. Quite a task. Yeah, we'd agree with that. Quite a task. So just for a start, for anybody to steal the body of Jesus would have been very, very difficult in fact, it would have been impossible. But yet some people, this is what they like to say. They like to say that the body was stolen. Uh, and there are four people that they say could have stolen the body. And whenever you look at these four types of people, what you're going to see is that they really, well, it's, 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 it's a bit crazy to believe any of them stole the body, and we'll see why. So the first people who they say might have stole the body were the Jewish authorities. The people who wanted Jesus dead uh, might have stolen the body just to upset the disciples. 
just, you know, to, to upset them, they, they took the body of their Messiah, the one who they claimed to be the king of the Jews. And that's what some people argue. But that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. Because the Jewish authorities did not want people to think that Jesus rose from the dead, did they? That's what Jesus had said he was going to do. He said, I'm going to rise from the dead. And those who killed him did not want that message being spread. They wanted people to know that Jesus was not the Messiah and not the Christ. So think about it. If the disciples went into Jerusalem and started saying, Jesus is the Messiah. He rose from the dead just as he said he would. Isn't this brilliant? What would the Jewish authorities have done? They'd have pulled out the corpse, wouldn't they? And they'd have said, no, no, no. Here he is. He's dead. He's not the Savior. He's not the Messiah. They would have crushed Christianity right there and right then. It's just not tenable that the authorities who were Jewish took it. Another one then is that people would say it was the Roman authorities uh, the Romans took the body. They went in and they stole it. They, you know, they, they conspired with the guards and they got the body out of there. Why would they do that? Though That's the first question. Why would they do that? They have no reason to do that. So that's the first problem with this theory. But the second problem is this. Once we fast forward a little bit down the line, once we fast forward 10, 20 years after the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christians become a pain in the neck for the Romans. They become a real pain in the neck, so much so that the Romans persecute them and try to stamp out Christianity. They burn Christians like candles. They try to wreck Christianity. They try to stop it in its tracks. Now think about it. If the Romans had stolen the body, all they needed to do to dismantle Christianity was make a statement that they took the body of Jesus. All they had to do was produce the bones of the corpse and say, we took it. We did it. And yet not once did that happen. Christians were a pain in the neck. If the Romans had taken the body, they could have crushed Christianity just with a simple fact. But yet nowhere in history do they come out and say this. It's untenable that the Romans took the body. Uh, another then theory is that grave robbers took it. So there were grave robbers, and uh, if you were a grave robber, you robbed graves to, graves to get money. That's why you robbed it. So you might have gone into a tomb, and if someone was wearing you know, jewelry or they had something special with them, you'd have taken that as your loot. Or what you might have done was if it was a prestigious person, you might have taken their remains and then for a ransom sold them back to the family and got some cash. And so some people say, well, the grave robbers, they, they took it. They wanted to make a bit of money out of Jesus. Really? Really? Who would have bought the body? Who would have bought the body from the grave robbers? The disciples couldn't have afforded it. But there is a group who definitely would have bought it. The religious leaders. And they had the money to buy it, wouldn't they? For 30 pieces of silver, they bought Judas, didn't they? Imagine how much they could have spent and bought this corpse of Jesus and presented it and said, here's your Messiah, he's no Messiah. 
and yet we never come up with a body. No body of Jesus is ever recovered. There's no shrine to him today. There's no burial place today. The body was never discovered. Again, it's very unlikely that grave robbers took it because someone would have produced it. And then this one, I think, is probably the most popular one. And it's interesting in our passage this morning, it's what the Jewish authorities said. They said, the disciples stole the body, they took it, and now they're claiming that Jesus is risen from the dead. And I think out of everyone you speak to, they will say this, the disciples took the body, they took it, and then they pretended that he rose from the dead. I don't think it's tenable that the disciples took the body. And here's why. I wasn't born, but I read a little bit about the Watergate scandal. You know the Watergate scandal, most of you? President Nixon, uh, his whole team of people embroiled in spying and, and lots of backhanded behavior. And eventually it was all uncovered and they brought 12 of the men before the, the judges and they, they couldn't keep it under wraps. They couldn't keep any of their secrets. They divulged everything after three weeks of trial. Uh, there was a man called Charles Coulson, and he wasn't part of that main 12, but Charles Coulson was one of the Watergate people who was investigated, and Charles Coulson went to prison because of the Watergate scandal. And I think Charles Coulson makes the very best argument as to why the disciples did not steal the body of Jesus. And I've put the quote on your page so you can read it with me. He became a Christian, by the way, in prison, and he says this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Think about that. I want you to imagine tonight that we made up a lie, and that we decided as a group that we were going to keep that lie no matter what. So what's the lie? Let's say that it's that I floated up to the ceiling tonight. And we all say, that's going to be our myth. That's going to be the thing that we're going to tell people. It's going to change the world. Let's, let's say that Marty floated up. That'll get the church filled with all the people who are into that stuff. You know, that'll be great. Let's, let's keep that myth. And you go out and you start saying, our minister floated to the ceiling in the evening service. And then you come to some boy and he puts a gun to your head. And he says, Really? really? Tell you what, you say that again, I'm going to shoot you. You tell me the truth and he didn't and I won't. None of you are going to get a bullet in your brain, are you? Not one of you. Yet 11 of the 12 disciples, crucified upside down, shot with arrows, killed with spears. 11 of the 12 died because they refused refused to recant the resurrection. I just cannot believe for a second, for a second, that these 12 men who'd been such cards could hold this 
for 40 years if they stole the body and knew it was a lie. That really only leaves us with one option. He rose from the dead. The reason the tomb was empty was because Jesus got up and left the tomb. It is the best reason to explain the empty tomb. Okay, then there's another thing that we have to reckon with. And it's the second thing on your sheet there. So the second fact is that people saw the risen Jesus. Or maybe I should have changed that. People said they saw the risen Jesus. So there were people, lots of people, and after the resurrection, they claimed to have seen Jesus. And so Paul, in that passage that we had in 1 Corinthians, he tells us about some of those. Uh, If you have a look at verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's another word for Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And then I love this, most of whom are still living. Corinthians is the earliest uh, letter in the New Testament. And what Paul says there, he says, listen, he appeared to 500 people at once. Most of them are still alive. Go and check it out. They'll tell you. They saw him. And then we see the next thing, verse, uh, verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of him are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he also appeared to me as to one abnormally born. So there we have Paul saying, I saw him. Paul says, I saw him. I saw the risen Jesus. And, and Peter saw him. And the apostles saw him. And James saw him. And 500 people at one time saw him. People saw Jesus after he'd risen from the dead. So people said they saw him. So, so how do we look at this? How, how can we believe this is true? Well, let's look at the op- options. The, the first thing that people say is that people saw Jesus after the resurrection because he didn't actually die. So this is called the swoon theory. And the way this theory goes is it goes that, yes, Jesus was on the cross, but he didn't actually die on the cross. And he was put in the tomb and he was just unconscious. He wasn't actually dead. And what happened was that he woke up in the tomb he, he took the, band, the, the, the wrappings off, and then he just went out uh, and started appearing to people. But, but the reason people saw him after three days was because he didn't actually die. So that is one argument that people make. He was never dead. He didn't die. That's why people saw him. Now again, let's just think about this. Let's just think about this for a moment or two. The first thing you have to know is that crucifixion had a 100% success rate in the Roman Empire. The Romans crucified thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And there is not one shred of evidence that anyone ever survived a crucifixion. Not one Anywhere in all of the history of the Roman Empire is there any evidence that anyone ever survived a crucifixion? No one. Not one. So statistically speaking, it's a very slim chance. The second thing is that that these guys who killed Jesus, this is their job. This was what they'd done. These people were killing machines. 
This was what they did day in and day out. They were experts in killing people. And then we get to the, another piece of evidence. What do they do with Jesus? They, it looks like he's dead. And what are they, they, they thrust a spear into his side and there's blood and water come out. And what that tells us is that the plasma is separating from, from something else. I, quite, I can't remember the scientific terms for it. But there's a scientific reason. Whenever you stop living, there's this separation that happens and the blood and the water flowed out to show he was dead. And then they were so confident so confident he was dead, they didn't break his legs. Now, why is that important? Um, the way someone dies on a cross is brutal. It's actually through asphyxia. So they're, they're hanging like this, and they can breathe in. Their, their lungs are in the breathing in position. And to breathe out, they have to push themselves up on a little bar or on the nails that are in their feet. So they, breathe, they push up to breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. And they did that over and over again until eventually they became too exhausted to breathe and they would die of asphyxia. And so if people wanted to speed up the death, which didn't normally happen, but we know from Jesus' account that it was, past, it was a Sabbath the next day, then what they did was they broke the legs so that they hung there and they just suffocated very, very quickly. But when they checked Jesus, they didn't break his legs. They knew he was dead. And here's another thing. If you actually were meant to crucify someone, and you didn't kill them as a Roman soldier, if you didn't actually follow through and make sure they were dead, you actually faced death. It's very unlikely. In fact, it's pretty impossible that Jesus was not killed by crucifixion. But let's say he wasn't. Let's just say, just for the crack, that he wasn't. 80 pounds, that's how much uh, weight was in the linen that was put on a dead body with spices put in the mix. So what Jesus did was he, he didn't die, but in his weakened state, he got out of the city pounds, then he moved the stone out of the way, then he beat up the two soldiers who were guarding the tomb, and then he went to his disciples and said, here I am, guys, and I'm feeling good. It just doesn't add up. Jesus was dead dead, dead. So that first theory, why did they see Jesus alive again? Because he hadn't actually died. It's not, it doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up. The second thing is then people say they were lying. They were just liars. They, they made it up. They didn't really see him dead. They knew he, you know, they didn't see him dead. And again, we've talked about the disciples. Again, you're not going to die or suffer for a lie. It's very unlikely they were lying. Think of that Chuck Colson quote. Then the next one I quite like because it's quite funny. Um, but this is true. So some people will argue that everyone was just hallucinating. Just hallucinating. You know, they were just so caught up wanting to be alive that they just hallucinated that he was there. Now, I understand that to some degree. Do you know, we might have a hallucination. We might really want to see somebody so much. We might hallucinate we've seen them. But here's the thing. You see, all of us, all at once, hallucinating the same thing. It's impossible. Speak to any psychologist. There is no such thing as group hallucination where we all see the same thing at once. But yeah, that's the argument. Yes, the disciples, when they were in that room and Jesus appeared to them, well, they all just hallucinated at once. The 500 people who saw him at once, they all just hallucinated at once. It is nonsense. 
psychologically, it is completely and utterly impossible. Hallucinations do not happen to crowds of people. And the same hallucination does not happen to any two people ever. Hallucinations are by nature individual and distinct. So where does that leave us? The best explanation is that they really did see him. The best explanation is that they actually saw Jesus risen from the dead. And that's why they said they did. And that's why they went around telling people they did. And that's why they died telling people that. Because it was true and they couldn't deny it. Then we have the last fact that we need to try and explain. And this fact is that after the resurrection happened, some people's lives were so radically transformed. They were transformed, completely changed. And and really there's no explanation for it other than that they saw the risen Jesus. Think of the cards. Jesus' disciples, they were cardly men, weren't they? Jesus was arrested, and what did they do? They ran away. The the shepherd was struck, and the sheep scattered. They ran. And you've got Peter, the most cordial of the lot, the little girl. Hey, I recognize you. You're one of Jesus' men, aren't you? Nope, don't know him. Don't know him. They were cordly men. They were frightened men. Even after Jesus had died, we're told that they went and they met together and they locked themselves away because they were scared of the Jewish authorities. Scared that the Jews were going to have a go at them or come after them. Frightened, cowardly men. And yet what are we told? We're told that these men, after encountering the risen Jesus, went into Jerusalem first. The place where Jesus has just been crucified, the place where all the religious leaders are, the place where their lives are up on a wanted list. And after meeting the risen Jesus, they go straight into Jerusalem and they start proclaiming that Christ has been raised. And they are not afraid of anybody and they do not care what happens to them. And then they go out through all of the provinces beginning in Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, proclaiming that Christ has been raised and they die for this. What changed them? What changed them? There's no answer other than that they really saw the risen Christ. And then you've got the skeptic, James, the brother of Jesus. Really interesting, James. You can read about him in, uh, in the Gospels. But James was a skeptic. James, whenever um, kind of the claims about Jesus were being made, that he was the son of God and that he was divine, James really didn't believe it. He wasn't having any of it. Um, he didn't believe that he was God incarnate. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah whenever Jesus was living. James did not buy it one bit. And you can read about it in John chapter 7 or Mark chapter 3 if you want to have a look at that. But he was a skeptic. He did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. He did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. But yet, what are we told? We're told that Jesus came to believe that James came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That James came to believe that Jesus had been risen from the dead. 
and a number of external sources from the Bible, like Josephus the historian or Clement of Alexandria, all record that James was murdered by the Sanhedrin because he claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to James. And after that appearance, this skeptic became a preacher who was murdered by the Sanhedrin. And then we have the last man, maybe the most famous of all, the persecutor, the one who wrote 1 Corinthians. His name was Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a Jew of Jews. He hated the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. He hated Christians for preaching that. He hated their message. And he was on his way to Damascus to arrest them, to have them thrown into prison. And this guy had everything. He had respect. He had his religion. He he had all of the customary things of the day. And what does he say? He said, Jesus appeared to me. Jesus appeared to me. To me, as one abnormally born. And you see, whenever you read the life of Saul, who was better known as Paul, he endured floggings. He endured imprisonment. He endured shipwreck. He endured a life of severe persecution and misery as he went around the whole Roman Empire telling people that Jesus was the Messiah, that he'd seen him, and that the Scriptures say that he would be raised from the dead on the third day, and that he was. What can explain this? Why would he give up all that he had to do this? The only thing that explains all of these the only thing that makes sense to explain all of these completely transformed lives is that Jesus really did rise from the dead and he really did appear to these people and they saw him and they touched him and they lived for him. Maybe tonight this has whetted your appetite and you'd like to know more about this or research more. I put a couple of um, books there that you might want to have a look at. One is called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. His wife became a born-again Christian, and Lee Strobel did not like this one bit because she was changing. And he felt that she was starting to love Jesus more than she loved him, even though that wasn't necessarily true. And what he asked for was an assignment to go and disprove Christianity. And so he went off on this assignment And he looked at evidence for the resurrection, and he looked for the death, and he spoke to all of the medical experts, and he spoke to the historical experts, and he spoke to the archaeologists, and he spoke to everybody who was everybody. And his conclusion, what else can I do but become a Christian? The evidence led to the fact the resurrection is true. It's a great book. I haven't read it all. I've dipped them in and out of it, but it's worth looking at. Another book then, this is kind of the big one, is called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Gary uh, Habermas and Michael Lincona. And again, that's another book. It's a little bit thicker than The Case for Christ, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. But I want to encourage you, if this has whetted your appetite, go and read, go and study, go and find out more and be encouraged that our faith is not in vain. 
But our faith is built on the fact, the truth, the evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead. It's interesting, Thomas didn't believe. He doubted. And Jesus was very gracious. And Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus gave him the evidence he needed. And tonight we've looked at some of this evidence. And it's good to be able to look at it. But at the end, Jesus says this to Thomas. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. And what Jesus is saying there, he says, blessed are those who believe me on the testimony of others. Blessed are those who believe me because the disciples and the apostles testified about me. Tonight, blessed are you who believe. Blessed are you who believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that whenever we become your disciples, you, you don't call us to leave reason at the door.